the accounts payable process has more moving parts than many accounting and finance professionals realize. It involves a lot more than simply getting a bill and paying a bill. That's precisely the reason I created this intensive session, which is based, by the way, on part of my recently published book, The Fundamentals of Accounts Payable. Whether you're an experienced accounting or accounts payable professional looking to review the basics, a new graduate hoping to land a job in accounts payable, or a seasoned accounting or finance professional looking to sharpen your financial acumen, or perhaps a bottom line focused entrepreneur, you've come to the right place. Make sure you stick around until the end when we discuss several issues that many don't even realize is part of the accounts payable process. Hey guys, I'm Mary Schaefer, founder of AP Now, the place where progressive professionals go for their latest business intelligence if they work in, manage, or have responsibility for the accounts payable function. All righty, so let's get started now. The fundamentals of accounts payable is made up of several parts. Today we're going to talk about invoice processing, the payment piece, and then some regulatory issues. And then as we come down towards the end of our time together, we'll talk about a little bit about where you can learn more because there is a lot more. Now, I want to start off by talking about accounts payable, big picture versus little picture. A lot of times I'll talk to uh, controllers, accountants, other people like that, and they'll say something like, I'm a big picture person. Well, that's great. Um, and it's great to look at the big picture. But when it comes to accounts payable, accounts payable is in the details. This is where you have to roll up your sleeves and di dive deep down into the minutiae. Because if you don't, um, you'll have an accounts payable process that is not efficient. It's not cost effective. It'll cost you a lot more than it should. Um, more importantly, or equally importantly, depending upon your outlook, it will not be resistant to fraud. Crooks will find an easy way to get around it. It won't be a you won't be compliant with a lot of the regulatory requirements. Your staff won't be happy. Your suppliers will be unhappy. So there's a lot of things that can go wrong if you don't pay attention to the little nitty gritty details because you get one wrong and voila, everything can fall apart. Maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but you get where I'm going. Now, I'm going to go over a lot of information today, but you don't feel like spending, I'm sure, eight or 10 hours with me talking about this. So I just want to point out that if you want to do some additional reading, the book Fundamentals of Accounts Payable is available on Amazon and other online uh, booksellers. You can get it directly from them. And if you have like a Prime account, you probably can get the postage for free. Okay, we're going to start off with the very basics of, of accounts payable, the reason that for many organizations, their accounts payable department exists, and that is invoice processing. When we look at all the different things that accounts payable does, um, it's not the same from company to company. There's, I have a list of like 30 or 40 different things that can be done in accounts payable, and no two companies will, will be the same. The only thing that's on the list for everybody is invoice processing. And by invoice processing, we mean paying the company's bills. An invoice um, in, in the corporate speak is another word for a bill. Now, when we talk about accounts payable and we talk about documents and paying bills, there are three documents that we focus on. The purchase order, the receiving document, and the invoice. And then occasionally there's a fourth one. So let's talk a little bit about what each of these are. We're going to start off by talking about the purchase order, okay? The purchase order is typically filled out in purchasing, and it is sent from purchasing to your suppliers, and basically it's an order. You're placing an order. You tell them how many widgets you want, the price that you're going to pay, which hopefully is the price that they're charging, and any other terms and conditions that you may have agreed to will be on the purchase order. You want to make sure you fill this out completely. Now, in today's world where most purchase orders are electronic, this is not a huge issue because you just click off, uh, tick off a box, but in days before, it wasn't. And when you're ticking off that box, you need to be careful because if you tick off the box that says uh, standard uh, terms and conditions, but your purchaser has negotiated some sort of a special deal, either a price or improved payment terms, that if it's not reflected on the purchase order, your accounts payable department is never going to know. And then they're not going to be able to make sure that it's offered to you by the 
supplier when that invoice comes in. Okay, purchase order. The next document that's important is the receiving document, the packing slip. Now, you've all gotten these, although you may not realize it. When you order, like, for example, from Amazon and you get that little piece of paper that tells you what's in included, that's your receiving document or your packing slip. You want to make sure that your folks on the dock are getting those receiving documents and they're just not automatically uh, clicking off that you got everything, but they're actually taking the time to look and see that, A, the receiving document says 100 widgets, and yes, there were 100 widgets in the box or whatever. So you want to make sure that they, they check these documents and they match them to what was um, shipped, because if they don't and there's a short shipment, you're never going to find it. And then the last document that we talk about, you know, the holy grail, if you will, is the invoice or the bill. This is the document that the supplier sends usually after um, the goods have been shipped that tells, the, tells you, hey, I want to be paid. We want to be paid. And it will tell you how much you owe them and hopefully when it's due. And then you just, it's the, the role of the accounts payable department to make sure that that invoice is correct. And we'll talk a little bit about how they do it. It is a lot more complicated than you might think. Now, there is a fourth document that is sometimes used in certain industries. It's not used in most industries, but like in the automotive industry, it's used, um, et cetera. And that is called an advanced shipping notice, an ASN. And basically, it will say, you know, we ship the goods and, um, you know, here the, this is what you should expect. And in some organizations, they'll do a four-way match, and they will include the advanced shipping notice, comparing that to the purchase order, the receiving documents, and the uh, invoice. But that's like um, the automotive industry, maybe some big manufacturers. It is generally not used. But if you're in one of those industries, then when you do your match, you'll want to include it. Now, the match that goes on in most places is a three-way match, and it matches those three documents. Uh, purchase order, receiving document, and invoice, and they want to make sure that they all agree, and if they are, then the item is scheduled for payment. If they're not, we have what is known as a discrepant invoice, and then somebody has to sit down and resolve the discrepancy. Uh, the four-way match is the similar, except it includes the advanced shipping notice. Okay, this matching process um, is a lot more uh, uh, cumbersome than it may may appear, and depending upon your industry and uh, your whole processes and you know the invoices that your suppliers prepare, you can have as much as twenty five percent of your invoices that don't match, and then therefore don't automatically uh, flow through for payment after they've been approved. So this can be a big uh, to do. Um, let's take a little bit about best and look at best and worst practices. Uh, some of these come from my book, 127 Best Practices for Accounts Payable. So you want to make sure that the purchase order is filled out correctly. And as we talked about before, uh, you want to make sure that if they any special terms have been negotiated, that they are reflected on the purchase order. Because if they're not, then accounts payable will never know about them. Now, I want to talk a little bit about after-the-fact uh, purchase orders. I could talk about whether they're good or bad, and in fact, I think we're going to do that when I get to the next slide in this talk. But what I want to talk about is if you're going to do after-the-fact purchase orders, the really awful way to do them is to go to purchasing and say, hey, we need a purchase order. You didn't, you didn't give us one. And they say, okay, I'll, give, give, I'll create the purchase order. Give me the invoice. And then you give them the invoice, and then they create the purchase order based on that invoice. When you do that, if there is a mistake on the invoice, i.e. if they have the price too high, it's going to be reflected on the purchase order, and you're never going to find um, overpayments. You're never going to find this discrepancy, and you are going to pay too much. So if you are going to do after-the-fact purchase orders, which we're going to talk about a little bit more, then you want to make sure that purchasing, when they put those purchase orders together, they do so by looking at their own information, not by looking at the invoice that the supplier sent, because that completely defeats the purpose. Okay, so after-the-fact purchase orders, are they make work? Should you do them? Should you not? People feel very strongly about this. And many times they'll say, "This you're just making additional work for me, especially if you won't give me the invoice. And th there's something to be said for that. However, and this is a big however, 
if you if your purchasing team knows that they're going to have to do these after the fact, then they may be less likely to forget about uh, to not do them in the first place. So I kind of like liken it to, you know, you're trying to teach them for the future. But people have very strong opinions on this um, about whether or not they should be done. I think they should be because if you have a policy that the purchase order you know, you're going to issue, you're going to have purchase orders, then you should always have purchase orders and not just some of the time. Now, by the way, let me be clear that I'm not saying that you should have a purchase order for everything because we see a few companies that do that and then it gets ridiculous. Somebody wants to buy a $10 book and they need to get a purchase order and, you know, after a while. Now, when purchase orders, best practices are not used, best practices, um, several things can happen. You'll lose the special deals that we talked about, especially if these are one-time special deals, which sometimes happens when a company is either trying to move inventory, maybe they have an item that didn't sell as well as they thought it would be, and they have excess inventory, or they're having cash flow issues, and they want to generate a lot of a lot of cash. They need to get some cash in. Uh, we see this especially at year end when people are trying to make their balance sheets look good. Um, when uh, you don't use best practices with your related to your purchase orders, you're sometimes you're going to have more errors and you're not going to find those errors and you're going to pay too much for your goods. And occasionally, I'm not saying all the time because that would just not be the case, uh, vendor fraud will slip through. Okay. So best practices when it comes to your purchase orders. And I know sometimes this is in purchasing. Usually it's in purchasing. And if you don't have uh, a procure to pay process, this is outside of accounts payable, but accounts payable needs to know about it. Okay. Let's talk about receiving invoices. Okay. Now this may seem like a fairly straightforward topic, but there's, there's a lot to be said here. So first of all, you want to receive your invoices all in one place. You don't want to let your suppliers send them wherever they, they want. So, you know, some people send it to the controller. Somebody else sends it to purchasing. Another group sends it to marketing. A few people send it to AP. That's just inefficient, and it makes it much harder for you to earn early payment discounts, which I'll talk about later. So ideally, you want to have your suppliers send your invoices to one location. And by one location today, what we mean by that is one postal mailing address that's very specific, you know, um, ABC company, uh, 123 Main Street, second floor, or ABC uh, company, uh, 123 Main Street, attention accounts payable, something that's very specific. So there's no chance that the folks in the mail room will send it to the wrong place. So one mailing address, one email address, and this email address should be very specific and it should only be used for getting invoices. So a lot of folks will use invoices at ABC company, or maybe they'll set something up like accounts payable at ABC company. The beauty of this is several people can go into that account. And then if somebody's out or somebody leaves, you're not in limbo. And you also want to have one fax number, and this fax number should be used just to receive invoices, not for anything else. Because if you allow it to be used for anything else, people are going to use it, which, okay, that's that's what you intend. And then they are going to, when they come over to pick up their invoice, to pick up whatever it was that they had faxed, they'll pick up some of your invoices, and now you become less efficient and effective than you might have been without allowing use elsewhere. Okay. Now, I want to talk about the reality of receiving invoices today. If you're receiving invoices through the mail, you probably know that the mail has gotten slower. The mail has gotten slower and postage continues to get more and more expensive. That's not really your concern on the accounts payable side, because after all, you're just worried about getting the invoices. But when you're talking to your suppliers about this and you're trying to get them to change their ways, then you can mention that, oh, you know, the postage is going up and it continues to go up. So what you want to do is you want to encourage electronic delivery. And by electronic delivery, I mean either emailing the invoice to you, usually in the form of a PDF, emailing it, or if you have some sort of a portal or you've purchased an automation solution that has a portal built in, that they send it that way. And of course, um, even though we don't talk about it that much, EDI is also another type of electronic delivery. When you're talking about electronic delivery, though, you also want to make 
to do, make sure that your suppliers understand that what you mean by this is you want one copy. You want them to send it electronically and you want them to send it only once. No more of this. They send it to AP. They send it to purchasing. They know somebody over in marketing. They send it there. No more of the sending three and four copies of the invoice and then you have to weed it out. This makes your accounts payable function much less effective, even if they do find all the duplicates and they do manage to get rid of them. So you want to encourage only one copy, okay? They've got to stop this, what I call ridiculousness. They probably don't see it that way because what they want is to get paid and that's all they care about. Now, the next thing that I want to talk about is uh, vendor credits. So let's just talk a little bit about the invoice comes in and it is, is processed. The invoice comes in. It is sent out for approval uh, based on if, if there's the name of the uh the invoice is sent out for approval uh, based on the name of the purchaser, if that's on the invoice, or the purchase order number. One or the other should be on there. It's sent out for approval. It comes back. You know you can't automatically pay it because a lot of people don't really look at the invoice. They just approve it for payment. You go through your three-way match. When the three-way match works and there are no discrepancies, you schedule it for payment. Sometimes um, an item will get uh, double double paid because you know they sent an extra invoice. Um, you have a whole bunch of reasons why your uh, vendors will end up having some credits on their books for you. Maybe you may, they made a duplicate payment. Maybe there was some damaged goods that they had to give you a, a credit for. Maybe you overpaid. Maybe you paid the wrong amount. Maybe you were entitled to a quantity discount that you didn't know about because you had several different units ordering, and so you qualified for this quantity discount as a group, but not individually, and nobody knew, and so there's a credit. There's a million reasons why your organization can end up with vendor credits, which is a good thing because that's money towards you. Now, the problem is that a lot of times, A, the company does not become aware that they have that credit, but even when they do, you want to make sure that your processes know what a vendor credit looks like because sometimes when they come in, especially if you have new processes who've not been trained adequately on this topic, they look at the credit memo and they think it's an invoice and they pay it. So then the company owes you $100 and now they owe you $200 because you've paid that credit. So you want to make sure that your uh, processes recognize vendor credits and they know what to do them with them. We've done uh, several videos on this and we'll put some links in the description so that you can watch them after this is finished if you think you have this problem um, because many, many vendor credits never get recovered and in fact they disappear. I call them the disappearing vendor credits but it is a bigger problem than many realize and the money's just gone and because you don't know about it you don't even know that it's gone. So that's uh, another area where you might want to um, put some effort. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, now let's talk about we've got the invoice and we want to um, enter the invoice data. We want to be very careful about the way we do it because we want to make sure that if a second invoice comes in, and we know a lot of those second invoices are coming in, that if I process the invoice today and you get that second invoice tomorrow, that you know what to do with it and you can easily identify the uh, that it's a duplicate. So one of the ways that we do this is we use what's called a rigid coding standards. And we tell our processes exactly how to enter the information. We, we tell them the name, how to enter the name, how to enter addresses. We tell them what abbreviations to use. Uh, we tell them if it's a, a um, an individual's name, like a consultant or one of your employees, whether to put first name first or last name first, okay? We sometimes call this an, a naming convention um, or coding standard, uh, but we're very precise and we explain everything to them about how we want this to work. And this way, everybody enters the data the same. This is one of those areas where we don't want creativity, and that way, um, you'll identify duplicate invoices. As I said, we're getting tons of them. Okay, so now assuming, you know, everybody's put their data in correctly, we're going to do our three-way match and voila, something doesn't match. So now we have to <clears throat> uh, resolve the discrepancy. Now, one of the questions I'm frequently asked is who should be responsible for resolving the, the discrepancy? At the end of the day, I think that the, uh, this should be resolved in purchasing. 
But the reality is in like 99% of the companies out there, accounts payable is responsible for resolving these, these discrepancies. So that's the world we live in. It's, I like to say it's the person with the least amount of knowledge who's expected to solve the problem, but that's what it is. So they have, you have to um, get them resolved. Now, when you're resolving them, this can take time because, you know, you send an email to purchasing or you send a note over to the to your supplier. People don't respond in a timely manner or they don't respond at all and you have to follow up. So because this doesn't happen so smoothly, like everything else in accounts payable, we want to track discrepancies. And this, tra discre this tracking of discrepancies sometimes can be done in the ERP if your ERP has that functionality built into it, but a lot of them don't. And so many companies will do this tracking in Excel. Now, this tracking can be done individually, but most frequently it's done by the manager, okay? And this way the manager can see where everybody stands on their discrepant invoices. You want to encourage regular follow-up and you want to encourage reporting. And by having this reporting and this regular follow-up and so that there's a document that everybody can see where you stand and how you stand, you're much more likely to get uh, these things resolved in a timely manner. Your goal should be, by the way, to get the discrepancies resolved before the due date, because then the invoice can be paid on time and it is less likely that your supplier will send another invoice. If you don't pay it on time, even if you have what you think is a really good reason, the odds are pretty high that your supplier is going to send another invoice, another copy of the invoice, and then we go, go through that whole rigmarole of problems. So you want to do that. Now, when you don't track and you just, you know, cross your fingers and hope that everything gets done, um, invoices don't get paid on time. Your supplier then sends a second invoice and they are well within their rights to do this. This creates more work for your accounts payable staff as they have to weed out these duplicates and they do a good job, but maybe not a great job. So some of these second invoices get through and some of them get paid. Okay. Um, and sometimes um, when you make a second payment, the vendor says, ah, these folks don't know what they're doing. If I send them two invoices, they'll pay two invoices. And then you know what happens. Before you know it, um, you're getting a slew of additional invoices, making a slew of duplicate payments. So not a good situation. Now, I've mentioned early payment discounts, and I want to talk a little bit about them. They are the best financial alternative that any company has. And basically what they boil down to is a discount for paying early. The most common one, at least traditionally, um, across all industries, maybe not your industry, is the old 210 net 30. And what this says is that the payment is due in 30 days, but you may take a 2% discount on it if you pay it before the 10th date. Uh, and if you don't pay it before the 10th day, then the full payment is due on the 30th. Now, you your vendors have to offer you early payment discounts. It's usually negotiated uh, by purchasing as part of their um, agreement. When you begin to do business, you can't just go and take it and say, well, I'm going to pay early and um, this is the discount we're taking. Uh, so, but it's something that in accounts payable, it's one way accounts payable can add some value if they look for um, early payment discounts. So you want to do that. Um, so some best practices related to early payment discounts, which I'm um, hopefully this is going to be, you're going to be da, of course, Mary, you want to earn as many as possible. Um, in addition to that, if you, especially if you have trouble getting invoices uh, processed and paid in 10 days, you might want to set up some special procedures to fast track invoices that have early payment discounts. And you want to look at all your invoices for an early payment discount. If you see an invoice from a vendor who does not offer you early payment discounts, and for some reason it has an early payment discount on it, you want to make sure to alert purchasing. Because if they are giving early payment discounts, if it shows on an invoice, it means they're offering it to some people. And if they are offering it to some people, why not you? After all, you know, you're, you're just as worthy and you want to get them because they are a real financial boon. That 210 net 30 that I was talking to equates to a 36% rate of return. And most of you are not getting that on your investments today um, if you're in any sort of legitimate business anyway. 
Now, there are a ton of issues around invoices, and we've barely scratched the surface. After the, you finish this se session, you might want to check out our other 450 videos addressing various issues related to accounts payable, including, but definitely not limited to, best practices, working in accounts payable, fraud protection, emerging issues, preparing for an AP or accounting interview, and more. And by the way, most of them are not as long as this. Some of them are as long as, as short as three minutes. Uh, most of them are, I would say, in the five to 10 minute range, but some longer. So you've got a wide selection there. All right. I'm going to stop talking about payments, uh, uh, invoices, and I'm going to move on and start talking about payments. Now, in the business world, we make payments in uh, one of five ways, generally. These are generally the ways. Actually, four. The last one, we don't really do that much. But I want to include it here because some people do use it, and it has the possibility of growing. So in the U.S., anyway, we, we make payments with paper checks. Uh, we have various different cards. We have ACH and wire transfer. And then a new addition, if you will, is instant payments. Now, let's just take a brief look at some of these, and then we'll dive into them in more detail. Paper checks is probably the one payment mechanism that's used by just about every company. Um, and hopefully most of these companies are looking to decrease the amount of paper checks. I'll give you a break, and I won't talk forever about how much I hate paper checks and why they're so bad. But just know that they are inefficient and they are costly, okay? About 80% of the companies out there or 80% of you listening, however you want to look at it, um, will be using a card product of, certain, of some sort. You might be using a P-card, which is also called a procurement card, corporate procurement card. There's also travel cards, fuel cards, and then what we call a one card. And a one card typically... Uh, is a card that's used that combines P-card, travel, and fuel. Okay, then we the next uh, uh, payment option, which is growing in popularity and growing in use, and hopefully will continue to do so, are ACH. And ACH are electronic payments. You may know ACH credits if you're getting direct deposit of payroll, um, but there's also a debit model. And then we have, depending upon when you want it to settle, which also involves not only when you want it to settle, but how, um, how much you're going to pay for the product. You have, uh, we have traditional ACH, and then we have same day, which settles on the same day. Traditional ACH typically settled the next day. Wire transfers are used by many organizations, but not everyone. They are expensive. At the end of the day, they're expensive, much more expensive than an ACH, um, and they are typically used for uh, large dollar payments, but also uh, rush payments sometimes, etc. And then the newest tool, if you will, are instant payments. Instant payments are used a lot in the consumer space. Uh, Zelle, Venmo, and, and Cash App with uh, making payments P2P, peer-to-peer, -peer, not procure-to-pay. Um, but now we've had the Fed enter the arena, if you will, has a new product out there, FedNow, and we're just waiting to see how the banks are going to take advantage of that and what sort of instant payments they are going to uh, be offering. So expect to see more um, on this channel and other channels um, and more conversation about instant payments. So the first three used by most, wire transfers also used a lot, and then to a smaller extent, instant payments. Um, we see it more in the business world at smaller companies. We see hairdressers and people like that, uh, businesses like that rather, uh, taking it. But you know, we shall see what we shall see what comes. So uh, paper checks um, at the end of the day, very uh, manual, very uh, intensive. A lot of pe uh, people you have to waste. And I do mean waste a lot of people effort. And we don't have a lot of, you know, human resources. They are expensive a lot more than you may think. If you're thinking 10 cents for the check, 10 cents for the envelope, 65 cents, which I think is what the postage is now, something a little less if you, you've got bulk and you're thinking that's not too bad. That's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the expenses related to paper checks. So what you want to do if you're a best practice organization and you're just looking to lower your cost is look for ways to reduce the number of paper checks that you issue. Okay. Now, um, some 
best practices related to paper checks, because at the end of the day, we're all going to use paper checks to some extent. So you want to make sure your checks are secure throughout the process, not just keeping your check stock under lock and key, which that, that's, you know, a good first step, but you don't want to leave checks lying around. You don't want to leave checks lying around where anybody can steal them. You want to make sure you have appropriate separation of duties uh, with not only the checks, but throughout your procure-to-pay process with uh, issuing paper checks just being one of them, uh, one of the steps, if you will. Uh, your check stock should have at least three safety features in it. Um, and if you look at your check stock, you, you can check to see if they are. Well, by the way, while you're checking it, you want to check your own personal checks. And if you got your checks from the bank, it, they probably do have more than three safety features in it. If you bought them through a woman's magazine, uh, maybe not. Okay. And um, if you're using pre-printed check stock with most of us aren't, but there's still a, 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 a sizable portion who are, you want to make sure that this check stock is kept in a secure location and you keep a log of the different check numbers so that you know you can account for all your checks. And you might say, well, if the check isn't written, what difference does it make? And the answer to that is the banks don't check signatures. And if somebody is willing to steal a check, they're certainly going to have no problem with um, defrauding you further by signing the check with somebody else's name. Everybody should be using uh, positive pay for the very simple reason that it is your best protection against check fraud. Not all frauds, but check fraud. And this is what positive pay does. You, you, uh, when you do a payment run, you also create a file that goes to the bank. That file that goes to the bank includes the check numbers and the dollar amount associated with each check number. Then as checks clear, your bank checks them against the positive pay file and if the check is in there, it takes them off the file. So somebody can't make 35 copies of the same check and deposit it and get the money 35 times. Uh, criminals quickly realized what was going on. And so they realized that the only thing they could change was the payee name. And so they started doing that. And so now banks developed payee name positive pay, which includes the check number, the dollar amount, and the payee name, okay? This gives you a little bit more protection. Not a guarantee, but a little bit more protection. Now, rush checks, um, some, also called sometimes called ASAP uh, payments, are a worse practice. Having said that, the reality is we all live in the uh, real world where sometimes there are mistakes, uh, and sometimes there are just times when you have to issue a check. You know, the, uh, the matter comes up at the last minute and you must re, um, issue a check, must make a payment. They disrupt accounts payable. They require a lot more human effort. Um, and sometimes by issuing them, I like to say they are positive reinforcement for bad behavior because the reason that you're, you have to issue them is somebody sat on an invoice not approving it for too long. But... It is what it is. We all, as I said, live in the real world. So occasionally you're going to have to issue them. Your goal should be to minimize that number. Also be aware if somebody says, why are you making such a big deal about this? That a, a good number of those uh, rush checks end up being duplicate payments and occasionally of uh, uh, fraudulent payments, a high number of rush payments. So um, just, you know, something to keep in mind. At the end of the day, your goal should be to minimize them. You don't have to get into that. Now, I said that, you know, we want to get rid of paper checks. Um, how do you do that? Well, our best way to get rid of them is to move them on to other payment mechanisms. The two ways that we're seeing right now that are good alternatives is to move your low dollar checks, if you can, to cards, um, probably a P card, and then the rest of your payments to ACH. Okay. Um, that's what we're, we're, where we're seeing the bulk of the activity today when people are looking, companies are looking to reduce the number of paper checks. Only time will tell what role FedNow will play, but it, it should play some role. But for now, look to move your payments to P cards and to ACH. So let's talk a little bit about P cards. Um, let's they're also known as procurement cards, corporate procurement cards, purchasing cards, something like that. They basically operate like a credit card. 
Um, but the big difference is that the liability for those payments does not lie with the individual whose name is on the card, but with the corporation. And uh, sometimes, you know, people are a little uncomfortable. Companies might be a little uncomfortable about issuing these, but keep in mind that you can really, really keep the, the cards under control and you can put some real limits on it. Your limits can be in the form of the dollar amount. The card might have, for example, a $5,000 limit, but you can also have a daily limit. There's a $5,000 limit on it, but can't put more than $500 on it a day or can't put any transaction that's more than $100 on it, depending upon, you know, what the nature of the business is for the person that's going to um, use the card. You can also put MCC, Merchant Category Code Restrictions. A lot of people, a lot of organizations automatically put an MCC code restriction on for um, no gambling, no no casinos, no jewelry, no liquor, whatever's appropriate for your uh, business. You want to add that restriction. And you can put those restrictions on and then take them off as needed. Same thing with the, the limits, the, the card limits. You can raise that and lower it as needed. So if you're a seasonal business, let's say it's a summer business, your swimming pool, you can raise it in the summer and then take it down once the high season has passed. Okay, let's move on to ACH, which stands just for Automated Clearinghouse. And um, automate, we used to say it comes in two, two flavors, credits and debits. Uh, the most common kind of ACH credit is direct deposit of payroll. We're now seeing ACH, uh, especially credits, being used to pay suppliers. ACH debits works a little bit differently. Uh, perhaps you went to the bank to get a mortgage and the bank said to you, hey, how about you let us debit your account? Um, it, this will make things more convenient for you and we'll debit your account on the first or the fifth of every month for your mortgage payment. And you may have said yes, okay, uh, because it is a convenience. And we're also seeing this activity come into the business world. Uh, one of the main places we see it being used is with the payment of sales tax with certain states. The settlement used to be next day. That's what we mean by traditional settlement. But now we have same day ACH. And I want to make it clear when we say same day and we say settlement being same day, same day does not mean instantaneous. All it means is that that payment will be there by the end of the business day. Okay. So don't con confuse same day ACH with instant payments. Not to say that it won't get there earlier, but it's not promised, okay? All you'll know is same-day ACH will be there by the end of the business day. And by the way, at this point in time when we're recording this, same-day ACH has a limit of a million dollars per transaction, okay? Not so little. Now, I've mentioned wire transfers are expensive, and they are, and they're usually used for large dollar amounts. Uh, and as some of you who are listening to this probably know, they have been the focus of many fraud attempts with emails, phony emails, supposedly coming from the CFO, but really coming from a criminal um, saying, please, you know, do this rush wire transfer. And the reason that um, they've become so popular is because if they can trick somebody into making a phony wire transfer, um, then there's a finality of payment. It's very difficult to get the money back once the payment has been made. And if somebody from your organization initiated the transaction, well, you're kind of stuck, unfortunately. So we've got to have a lot of controls over that. Now, let's talk about instant payment. The two most uh, popular ones are the two, and by popular, I mean the ones that we know the best, um, have had a lot of controversy around them. Some of that controversy has been cleared up, but you still need to be careful. Then um, that's Zelle and Venmo. The big thing to be aware of is these are not bank products. Um, although they have to be linked to a bank account or a credit card, they are not bank products per se. Okay, this has led to certain uh, confusion. They are not being widely used, as I said earlier, for corporate payments. However, the Fed has gotten into the instant payment game. And in July 2023, they introduced a product called FedNow, which some of the banks and um, other uh, service providers are looking to build products on. So we should see some new products coming out in the instant payment market uh, soon, arena rather, not market. Okay. So it should be interesting. Okay. 
I'm going to stop talking about payments because I could talk about them forever and um, we've got to move on. You, like I said earlier, you don't want to spend eight hours with me. And we're going to talk about some regulatory issues. Now, what I want to make clear as we go spend a few minutes together talking about the regulatory issues that hit, that impact accounts payable is that by no stretch of the imagination am I going to make you anything close to an expert on these topics today. We simply do not have enough time. I call this the speed dating version of regulatory compliance. My goal today with discussing these topics is just to make you aware of what they are and to give you an understanding of what should be done, okay? But really keep in mind that um, you could spend days on these topics and you'll find webinars and seminars uh, sessions that will go on, you know, a day, two days, three days on these topics, because you can really dive down deep. But we're only looking at the accounts payable implications, at least today, and um, at a very high level. But understand, okay? So the first thing that I want to talk about are W-9s and W-8s. Um, the big difference between these is a W-9 is for what the IRS calls U.S. persons, and a W-8 is for non-U.S. persons, okay? Now, I'm making it really simple, okay, when I say that. And the, these are IRS forms, and the purpose of them is to collect a taxpayer name and a taxpayer number. So in the case of the W-9, you might be looking for a Social Security number if it's an individual, like for an, a consultant, for example, or it might be an EIN, an employer identification number, if it's a company. Um, in general, when you're making payments, your best practice for either one of these is you want to get one and you want to get it before you make the first payment. Because before you make the first payment, you're in the driver's seat. Once you've made the payment, if you're not doing business with them anymore, they could care less whether you get your W-8 or your W-9. So as a best practice, first of all, you want to make it part of your terms and conditions that they have to supply it for you. And then when you get it, and again, before you make your first payment with the W-9 and only the W-9 information, you want to run it through IRS TIN matching, which is the same uh, program, by the way, the IRS will use when they are examining your 1099s to see that you did them correctly and you want to resolve any discrepancy again before you make the first payment. Now, sometimes people will say, well, why can't we run the W-8s through it? Well, it's real simple. With the W-8s, you're not collecting U.S. tax information, but you're collecting inf tax reporting information about foreign countries, and that information is not in IRS TIN matching. That's one of the reasons, not the only reason. So IRS TIN matching, I'm a big advocate of it. First of all, it's free. It doesn't cost you anything, okay? You need to sign up. You need to register it. And then it will allow you to verify the name, TIN combinations that you are going to use when you issue your 1099s, okay? So the idea, the beauty of this is then you don't get all those B notices. Now, there are some certain restrictions. Um, you must be an authorized payer. And by that, it just means the IRS means that you must have made, issued a 1099 in the, pri the prior year. And they are, it, you can only verify information for certain 1099s. Luckily, from the accounts payable standpoint, the 1099 MISC and the 1099 NEC are included. Now, you might be sitting here scratching your head saying, well, why don't they just add the others? And the answer to that is this was set up by um, an act of Congress, and they have to go back to Congress to get approval to add additional 1099s to the TIN matching program as it's available to, you know, people like your company and my company. And I guess nobody's in a real hurry to do that. Okay. So you want to do this, you want to get them fixed, and then hopefully you will get um, more, uh, fewer, fewer B notices. Now, information reporting, uh, information tax reporting, 1099 issuance, whatever you want to call it, um, is typically handled in about at about 76% of all companies, it's handled in accounts payable. We did a survey one time. That's how we know the number. Um, this is a really tricky area. The 1099s, as I, you probably know, go out in January. You've got to get them to the uh, payee by January 31st. You have a little bit longer, depending upon a whole bunch of circumstances that we're not going to talk about here, to get it to the IRS. The big thing with the uh, 1099s is the rules change every year. Um, not the whole thing, but they tweak here and they tweak there. 
Some years they make more changes than others. So you want to keep on top of that. That's number one. Number two, keep in mind that the IRS has gotten a lot of funding uh, over the last year or two, and they will continue to get that for the next few years. Um, and they are investing that in new staff and new technology. The new technology, by the way, is desperately needed. So this means they'll be able to do a better job of looking, you know, coming after us when we have discrepancies, name 10 uh, discrepancies on our 1099s. Uh, deadlines are being shortened thanks to criminals who are playing all sorts of games. And um, that the fines and penalties for name 10 mismatches add up. So every 1099 that you issue that has a name 10 that does not match, um, there is a fine and that can add up. You should also be aware, and this is a big one, and I don't think that everybody is fully cognizant that this is going on, is that not only are there 1099 reporting requirements at the federal level, but the individual states have their own 1099 rules. And here's a big surprise. They don't always conform to the rules at the federal level. And of course, state A might be doing it different than state B and state C. So this is becoming a huge task and one that we need to stay on top of. And of course, just as technology makes accounts payable and accounting and finance and criminals more effective, it's also going to make the IRS more effective. So um, definitely you wanna make sure that every uh, fall um, you send your staff who are responsible for it, that they get the latest information. And you can do this by sending them to a webinar or an e-workshop, a seminar, or you can have them go to the IRS website and comb through all that material, but that will take time. And I don't know how much time your, your staff has. I will tell you at AP Now, every fall, we run a few webinars and an e-workshop um, just related to the issuance of 1099 because we know how important that is to our members. Of course, we open it up to everyone. Now, worker classification. Uh, be aware, by the way, this is a big Biden issue. This, you know, goes and sometimes it's a big issue, sometimes it's not. It's something that Joe Biden is pretty passionate about, and it's called worker classification. And basically what it means is, is somebody one of your employees or are they an independent contractor? From a uh, payment standpoint, if they're an employee, they usually get paid through payroll. And if they're an independent contractor, they usually get paid through accounts payable and get a 1099. The IRS has some very strict guidelines as to what makes somebody an employee and what makes them an independent contractor. We call it the um, 20 question test and, um, you know, things, you know, ebb and flow. There's been a lot of controversy, if you will, uh, with Uber and services like that. Um, I don't know how it's going to turn out, but it's just something that we need to be on top of. If you're, you work in accounts payable, just be very cautious. If somebody comes down, usually a high level executive and says, you know, here's Joe, he used to be a senior vice president. Now he's going to be a consultant and we, you'll be paying him in accounts payable instead of payroll. And he's doing basically the same thing that he used to do. I can tell you that he's going to fail the 20 question test if you are ever audited for this. This is another one of the many ugly audits you can get involved in. So try and make sure that you go through the 20 questions and you know document why you made the decision that you made. Um, in reality, nobody, you know, nothing's black and white and nobody is going, not nobody, but oftentimes people won't, it won't be 100% everybody answered the 20 questions, oh, we're employee or oh, oh we're a uh, independent contractor. So, you know, it takes a little bit of thinking and analysis, but you want to do it and then you want to make sure you keep track of it. Okay, unclaimed property is also sometimes referred to as a cheat. Um, my favorite joke, by the way, which probably half of you are going to be cringing and say, Mary, that's a terrible joke. But I like to, whenever I'm talking about unclaimed property, to talk about your cheating heart, the Hank Williams song. All right, I'll put my bad jokes aside. Um, most experts estimate that only about 35% of all companies are actually 
conforming to the unclaimed property rules and reporting and remitting correctly. Okay, this means 65% aren't. Uh, the rules are quite complicated. Where this comes into play in accounts payable is the states consider uncashed checks an unclaimed property obligation that should be reported and remitted to the states in a timely manner. And the timely manner varies from state to state um, and depending upon the type of property that it is. And people do thing, make big mistakes in this, this area. Um, where it falls down into your accounts payable process is you want to make sure that you follow up on uncashed checks and documents uh, and document your efforts and returns. So if somebody hasn't cashed a check, you probably want to follow up with them at maybe 60 or 90 days. It's a lot easier to track them down than two or three years out uh, when you're doing your unclaimed property reporting. And um, when they tell you why they didn't cash it, they didn't get it, or whatever, you want to document it so that uh, if you're not going to report and remit that money to the state, when you're audited, you will have uh, a, a good explanation. If you are audited and if you have any say over this, which oftentimes you don't, but occasionally you do, you want to make sure that you get a third-party auditor that works for the state. I'm sorry, you want to make sure you get an auditor that works for a state, not a third-party auditor who is doing work for the state and whose payment, they'll never tell you the second part, um, is contingent on how much they uh, re recover because they're going to go about it a lot differently than the state guy who's just on salary. Okay, I'm going to move on from that. As you might imagine, uh, unclaimed property is a lot more complicated. You know, every state's got their own rules. They all have it, uh, etc. I want to talk a little bit about sales and use tax. Um, the whole issue with sales and use tax as it comes to accounts payable is um, you need to be able to prove that sales that, that you paid sales tax. Unfortunately, what makes this so touchy is while you're responsible for paying it, it's your suppliers who are re responsible for collecting the sales tax and remitting it. Now, as you are well aware, um, this country was founded on the principle of taxation without representation. And so what basically what that boils down to in the sales tax world is that if a particular supplier does not have nexus in your state, and nexus can be many things, which I'm going to talk about, then they can't collect sales tax from you. And when they can't collect sales tax, then you are expected to keep track of this, accrue it, the tax, and we call it use tax, which is just the sales tax that the that your supply couldn't and remit it on a on an uh, appropriate basis. Nexus can be physical nexus, which is what we used to have, and then all sort of click through and affiliate tax uh, uh, nexus, which you know gets very complicated. Okay, the important thing is you need to be able to. Uh, prove that you paid the in, the uh, sales tax. And that's why you want your invoices, if you are paying sales tax, to have it clearly broken out so that you can prove, yes, we did pay sales tax. Now, um, as I've alluded to um, during this chat, um, duplicate copies of invoices have become a huge problem for just about every company. Nobody is exempt from this problem. There are a number of ways that you can tackle this nightmare. Um, we recently did a, vi a short video on that that you can watch right now using the link that will appear on your YouTube screen and is in the description. I appreciate your thumbs up, your likes, your comments, and your subscribes as they help us plan future content.